If you'd please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are continuing our series, What's Love Got to Do With It? The question for the Corinthians, the question for many of us. As we evaluate our lives, we can look at all, um, certainly lots of different measurements, different benchmarks, but how about the measurement, the benchmark of love? I will read the whole chapter. And once again, want to remind everyone of uh, just a, a loving challenge for everybody to say, Memorize this, tra- this chapter of Scripture. Um, do it with your, memorize it with your spouse. Memorize it in your small group. Memorize it in, the, in your men's Bible study or memorize it in uh, women's Bible study. But this is certainly a chapter of Scripture worth knowing. You'll see it on the screens as well. This is the Word of God. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, you are a good, good father. That is who you are. You are the archetypal father. You are the perfect father. You are the definition of what fatherhood should be. You protect us, you watch over us, and you love us. And when we are in your hands, we need not fear anything. So we pray, O God, that we would see your love made real to us and that we would apply it to our lives, that we could live out a life of love to a world that needs it so badly. We know that this is love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, Lord, help us to translate our love into action. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today we're looking at what love isn't. Last week was what love is. And as I was looking through this list of attributes about what love is not, these characteristics um, about love is, it, it is, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, and so forth. thought, how am I going to preach this sermon? I could certainly get up there and say, don't do these things. Don't be envious. Don't be proud. 
God doesn't want you to be envious. He doesn't want you to be proud. He doesn't want you to be self-seeking. And all those things would be true. But we need to know, why are we that way? Why are we envious? Why are we prideful? Why do we boast? Why do we dishonor others? Why are we self-seeking? And then, how do we become different people? That's really the question. So, we're going to go at it this way. Um, First of all, I don't know if you know the difference between the gravity on Mars versus the gravity on Earth. Some of you may have seen the recent movie, The Martian, or you've read the book, and you know they're not the exact same thing. And just in case you're wondering, the gravity on uh, Mars is only 38% of the gravity on Earth, okay? So if you weigh 100 pounds on Earth, you only weigh 38 pounds on Mars. It's a good deal, right? Um, And, uh, you know, I think there's a part of us that can relate to a desire to sort of transcend our limitations, right? Little kids say, I wish I could fly. I wish I could just sort of jump away. Um, I wish I could be like a superhero. And uh, gravity, of course, while it's essential to us, in some ways we long to transcend it, I think, at least especially when we're young. Here's our outline for today, three points. First of all, the gravitational nature of self, the centrifugal nature of love, and putting love into action. Now, I need to say this. I said it first service. I'm going to say it to you guys too. When I was in high school, I took physics class. I really liked the, the teacher. He was a great teacher. And so I don't know why. I don't know what was in my mind, but I said, I think I'm going to try to take AP physics the next year. Now, I was the only person in my AP physics class who wasn't also in calculus because you really needed to be in calculus to do AP physics. But the, the teacher said, all right, Josh, I guess if you want to try it, you can try it. And all I'm going to say is, that the score I got on the AP physics exam is between me and the Lord. And I'm not going to share that. But I'm asking you to be gracious with me as I use terms from physics as metaphors. And some very smart people came up to me after the first service and said, look, Pastor Josh, listen, you're right about gravity, but centrifugal, centrifugal, you know that's not actually a force, right? It's an apparent force. Centripetal is a real force. Uh, centrifugal is, a, is an apparent force that makes us seem as though we're going away. All right, so, but let's just let it work, okay? I'm a pastor. I'm not a physicist, all right? I could have said the inward nature of self and the outward nature of love, but I just like this better. Um, and we all understand gravity, don't we? So hang with me here, um, even if the physics isn't the best. All right, gravity gravitational nature of self. We all understand gravity. Gravity is the force that attracts a body toward itself. It's the force that causes physical things to move toward each other. Gravity is a great metaphor to describe why we're envious, why we're boastful, why we're prideful, why we dishonor others, why we're envious. It's because Sin, and here's a definition of sin for you, sin is rebellion to God's loving rule over our lives manifested in addiction to self. Of course, that's not the only definition of sin that we could give, but that's what sin is. It's rebellion to God and it's wanting everything to be about you. And the the reason why gravity works so well as a metaphor, because really what sin does is it makes it where we want everything Thing and every person in our lives to revolve around us. We want everything else to be pulled in by the force of our gravity 
and make everything about us. That's what sin is. Here's two verses from Scripture, Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah Jesus, the iniquity of us all. All of us, we've all turned away. Exodus 22, you shall have no other gods before me. Why is that the very first of the Ten Commandments? It's because God knows our first instinct is to replace him, to take him out of the center of the orbit of our lives and replace that with namely ourself or any other God. We have a natural gravitational nature to our sinful natures that causes us to be sinful people. Now, I have a little list here, a little chart you'll see on the screen about uh, the, the different characteristics listed here. We won't go through each of them for very long, but I'll just say this. Each of them relates to the self. Think about this. Um, Paul mentions, love is not envious. It does not boast. It is not prideful. Think about envy. Envy says, I want to have what you have. Boasting says, look at how great I am. Pride is to think more highly of yourself than you ought. The Greek word actually comes from an object that is distented. In other words, it is overinflated. It's, it's puffed up more than it should be. That's what pride is. Verse 5, we know that love does not dishonor others. Why do we dishonor others? Oftentimes, we dishonor others to save face for ourselves. Love is not self-seeking. Well, self-seeking, that is so often just about our own pleasures, getting what we want. Love is not angry. Why do we get angry? We get angry when we oftentimes when we don't get what we want. Bitterness, resentment. Bitterness, resentment says, you hurt me and I'm not going to let you forget about it. I'm going to hold on to that. All of these characteristics that we see that Paul describes, all the things that love isn't are results of the gravitational nature of ourselves because we all have a disease called sin. We often see this addiction to ourselves uh, the most clearly in marriage. There was a New York Times article that I read recently uh, that it was very interesting. The name of the article is Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person, right? Great article, um, great title there. Why, why you will marry the wrong... And you say, really, I'll marry the wrong person? The author says, yes, you're going to marry the wrong person. And he, and he tries to offer some advice at the end about how you cannot marry the wrong person, but it's by Elaine de Botton, a Swiss philosopher, writer. Um, he's um, uh, had a few TED Talks and that sort of thing. And he says this. He says, if you look in human history, there have been two kinds of marriages. There's been the marriage of reason. Okay, and what's the marriage of reason? The marriage of reason is people get married simply for practical reasons. It makes sense to, to families say we should come together. We should bring our resources together. Uh, this is what's behind arranged marriages historically. But the marriage of reason says, I'm going to marry this, reason, this person simply for practical reasons. Now he says, look, that's, that's been one model as to why people marry in human history. He says, the reason people marry now is um, the marriage of, get the title here, the marriage of feeling. He says, nowadays, because in large part in the West, because we've reacted so strongly to centuries and centuries of loveless marriage, now we're, we, we marry largely out of feeling and we flip the script so that we oftentimes we make irrational choices and we just, we, we just fall in love with someone and, and uh, never mind if it's a good pairing, but we just, we go ahead and we marry them. And De Botton says, both approaches to marriage are going to lead to struggles in marriage. 
So he says here, here's, here's my advice on how to have a good marriage. This is what he says in the New York Times article. He says, first of all, marry someone good at compromise and negotiation. All right. Preferably someone like yourself. Um, he says, marry someone who can work through difficulties, that sort of thing. Then he also adds this in the article. He says, lower your expectations. Okay. And this is, this is seriously what he says. He says, have a philosophy of pessimism in your marriage. And he says, a philosophy of pessimism offers a solution to a lot of the distress and agitation around marriage. In other words, if we would just set the bar lower, then we wouldn't be disappointed when we fight and when we have disagreements and when it's not um, all, you know, like a Nicholas Sparks book or something. And he says, just lower the expectations. Now, as we think about this from a biblical standpoint, what do we say? We say, well, first of all, there's some, some good points here. One of them is, it's true that you do need to learn how to compromise in a marriage, in a healthy marriage. That's true, at least to a degree. It's also true that largely in our culture, we have unrealistic expectations of marriage that are not shaped by the Bible. But on the whole, his solutions are totally inadequate, and I would add unrealistic too. I mean, he says, for example, marry someone who's good at negotiations, preferably someone as much like you as possible. Now, who really wants to be married to themselves? All right? That sounds like a nightmare to me. That sounds like a recipe for insomnia for me. Who wants to marry yourself just to mitigate any kind of conflict? Opposites attract. There's a reason opposites attract. We're interested in that which is different. And then, of course, when we think of his other solution, lower the bar, we say, really? Is that the best we can do when we think about marriage to just lower the expectations of, of, of our, uh, what we should expect out of a marriage. Well, the Bible gives a resounding no to that. Pessimism, by the way, is always the easy way out. Take a pessimistic view. The Bible about marriage and every issue is realistic, but it's also hopeful. It's realistic, but also hopeful. Here's what um, the Baton gets right in his article. The title is what he gets right. Why you will marry the wrong person is totally in line with the Bible. You want to know why? Because, yes, we do marry the wrong person. We marry a fellow sinner. You do marry the wrong person. You marry a sinner like yourself. But what De Botone doesn't realize, and it's because he's, he's not a Christian, he doesn't have a biblical worldview, is that there is no right person to marry. We all marry another sinner. Marriage at its best is always well, and not just at its best, it is always two sinners saying, I do. See, here's what the Bible says. Here's what we need is not to lower our expectations or to develop negotiation skills, not that the latter can't have some benefit, but, but rather our biggest need isn't compatibility or negotiating tactics or lower expectations. It's the grace of God in Christ to change our hearts. That's the biggest, you want a good marriage? That's the number one thing you need to realize. You need God's grace to have a good marriage. Secondly, you need to know this. Marriage isn't intended primarily to make you happy. It's intended primarily to make you holy. Now, marriage comes with great joy, great blessings, but ultimately, marriage, like, like every relationship that we have in life, is ultimately about our sanctification, about making us more like Jesus. That's why Tim Keller can say this, and it's, this is a very profound statement. What keeps a marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness. 
Now, imagine if, if, if all married couples had that approach. They said, you know what? What's going to keep this marriage going through the good times, through the hard times, is not whether or not we, we still get along or we still like the same movies or, or we're, one of us is still, you know, we're both still healthy or whatever, but rather what keeps me loving and ultimately absolutely committed till death to us part, no matter what, to this person that I love is my commitment to my spouse's holiness. That's what we ultimately need. You know, marriage comes with challenges. Every marriage comes with challenges. There's an author named G.K. Chesterton. I think we have this on the next slide. Um, who, who says this about marriage? Um, he says, marriage is a duel to the death, which no man of honor should decline. Okay, tongue-in-cheek, all right? It's not really a duel to the death. But married couples, sometimes it can feel that way. And what we need is ultimately not self-help. We need Jesus. We need the grace of God. We need Christ. We need to remember that our goal is our spouse's holiness more than anything else. Well, our... We could go into a lot of other areas of life, not just marriage. We could go into a lot of other areas to see how our self is um, always pulling us inward. It's, it's drawing us in. But now let's look at um, how does the Bible define love, period. The centrifugal nature of love. Let's look at this. And first of all, how does the Bible, how does the Bible define love? This is important. We need to know what love is. I mentioned this last week. Um, in the Bible... To love is always to act. To love is never mere words. It's not that words aren't important, but it's always to act. So if, if one person says, if one person is constantly doing, committing another sin against another person, I know we all have sins that we repeat, but if, if you constantly commit a sin against another person and you say, listen, I love you and I'm sorry that I sinned, but I love you, but, but, but I love you and I told you I'm sorry. Well, the Bible says that love, the truest form, true love expresses itself in action. Ultimately, we show our love by what we do. To be loving is to act lovingly. And so Gordon Fee says this, what is love? This is a good definition of love. To love is to actively seek the benefit of someone else. That's what love is. That's what our, that's what our heart's desire is. It's not simply to say kind words to people. That is, that is a form of love. That's a kind of action. But it's, it's ultimately to show our love to our children, to our spouses, to our co-workers, to our family members, to our neighbors. Three passages of Scripture that show that God always demonstrates His love. He doesn't just talk about His love. 1 John 4, 9. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and that he sent action, his son, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we all also ought to love one another. See the stress on what God has done. He's expressed his love. He sent his son. John fifteen three. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the, the continued stress of the Bible is that to be a loving person is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to express that action 
in everything that we do, everything that we say, in our thoughts, in every part of us. It's, mere, it's more than just sentimental words, but it's living out our love. Let's look at this idea real quickly as we end, putting love into action. How does God's love free us from uh, the gravitational pull of our own hearts? Well, this is what God's love does. God's love, when it fills our hearts, it pushes us outward and it frees us to love people and not simply to use people. All of us, now often, I think we all have to evaluate our relationships and we, and we need to say, in this relationship or in that relationship, how much am I loving a person and how much am I using a person to meet a need that I have? Love liberates us to, to love and to not use. And love enables us to ask this question in any situation, in any relationship that you have. How can I serve you instead of what can I get out of you to satisfy the needs that I have? You see, that's what love does for us. It enables us to move beyond just um, what can I get from you? How can you make me feel good? How can you... Um, what, what can I benefit from this relationship? And, but rather, how can I serve you? How can I pour out myself to you? Let's apply this into a few concrete situations about putting love into action. I have a couple, there's a couple examples I'm going to go through. Our parenting, um, how we relate to our neighbors. I'm also going to add, I'm going to just add one before that to our sexual desires. Our sexual desires. Let's think about that one. Um, so often, Particularly men struggle with lust. Uh, we th- and we think about our sexual desires. We think, um, well, you know, I'm a man. I, I, I need to have these things. And it's so easy to go with what our, we so often see in our culture, which is a very sad objectification of women. Instead of saying um, women are, are made in the image of God, worthy of, of love and respect. They're my sisters in Christ. And yet the gravitational nature of self in this particular area leads us to selfishness. And um, oftentimes, I know it's not only true for men, it's true for women too, oftentimes for women, not only exclusively, the desire can be, well, I want to be beautiful because I want to be desired. I want to be sexually desirable. Um, Why? Because there's something that I want to get out of that. Um, I want to be praised and loved by others. And as we, as we think about moving from a, a, the gravitational nature of self to the nature of love, love frees us to say, um, I, I'm, I'm going to be free from the greed of lust. That's what lust is. It's greed, by the way. It's greed. It's saying, I, I want something that's not mine. And it frees us from, um, how, from how we view the opposite sex and how we view our sexual desires from something that simply becomes about me and what I can get to rather... In the covenant of marriage, how can I serve? How can I love? How can I give? Let's look at our parenting. You know, in America in 2016, I think we can all relate to this, we're very focused on our kids' success. And as parents, we want to make sacrifices for our children. And, and we say to ourselves, myself included, we say, parenting is hard. I'm, I'm, I'm sacrificing so much for my kids, they better be thankful, Right? Um, those kids better be thankful. 
and they better pay me later. Um, and the truth is, our kids are never going to really be able to, you all know this, right? You can never really pay your parents back, and your kids can never really pay you back, because parenting is largely sacrifice. It's, the two words are largely synonymous. To be a parent is to sacrifice. And yet, we make these sacrifices for our kids. We do desire that they would, they would grow and, and um, contribute to society. But oftentimes, there's a, way to, there's a way to make sacrifices in our parenting that's, that's still selfish. Because we may say that everything that we are doing is for our kids' future, but how much of it is really about ourselves? I'll give a confession um, about myself. Recently, I was reading, I don't know where I read this, but I read somewhere that there are currently no evangelical justices on the United States Supreme Court. Do you know that? There are no evangelical justices on the, on the United States Supreme Court. Um, for most of American history, there's been, um, uh, you know, pro- at least Protestant judges um, who, at least, in na- at least by their de- denomination, shared, shared our values um, with the gospel and, and so forth. And, and I remember I, th- I thought about that. And then at one point in my mind, I thought to myself, now I have a son named Justice. And I said, you know, Chief Justice Justice Desch. That's kind of, it's kind of got a ring to it. And I feel like just, just the name would, would shoot him right through the nomination process. I mean, who's going who's gonna to stand up in Congress and, and say, man, we're, we should vote down a guy named Justice. He's been destined for this position. And, uh, you know, it's silly to say it out loud. But we do dream dreams for our kids, don't we? We do have hopes. Um, we do, we work really hard, we sacrifice. But you know what, parents? The thing that really matters is that our children know the Lord. That's what really matters. Of course, we desire that they'll go into an honorable profession and work hard and contribute to society. But there's a lot of different professions that you can do that in. And law is certainly an honorable profession. I'm not saying it's not. And maybe God would call what, one of my kids to go into law. I don't know. But my point is, that was a, when, I, you know, when I have that thought, that dream, it's about me. It's about me. And it's about maybe what I would want for my kids. And the love of God frees us to love our kids and say, God's made you unique. And I'm going to love you. And I'll point you to Jesus. I'm going to teach you responsibility. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be willing to let you fail too. I'm not, I'm not, you're not going to be so precious to me that you can never fail. Because if you fail, then I fail somehow. But rather, I'm going to entrust you to God, your future, what God would have for you. How about one more? How about our neighbors? You know, if you think about what do you want, what, what's, what's your short list for what you desire from your neighbors? You know, my short list would probably be something like this. The music's not too loud. Um, you know, not really, really loud music. Um, I can borrow a stick of butter if I need a stick of butter, um, you know, or borrow a rake or something like that, or just be cordial. And oftentimes, I I know this isn't the case with all of us, but maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but oftentimes what we think with neighbors is just don't inconvenience me. I mean, we'll be cordial, we'll be polite, um, but, but... let me do my thing and, and you do your thing and you may live right across the hall in my building, but um, let's just not bother each other and be friendly. And that can be largely about ourselves and not wanting to be inconvenienced. 
But as the love of God fills our heart, maybe we say, okay, I'm willing to have the 20-minute conversation out in the hall that I wasn't planning on having because we're all of us, we're always, you know, none of us just have no, no place to be, right? How often does that happen? But maybe I could be inconvenienced to listen to my neighbor who is maybe going through a divorce or their children are struggling or they're having difficulties at their work or they don't know the Lord or they have some kind of addiction or whatever. And it's so easy for us to all of a sudden wake up and say, I've, I've lived across the hall from a person for five years and I only know their first name. And the love of God says, I'm willing to be inconvenienced and I'm willing to have a desire to go deeper with my neighbor or my coworker because that's a person made in the image of God and I want them to know the love of Christ. I want them to know the love of Christ like I know the love of Christ. And as the Holy Spirit fills us more, it's, it's less about us and it's more about loving other people. I'll end with this. Um, and again, I'm going to go back to physics, so start praying for me. Um, but, you know, there's this thing called a black hole, okay? And uh, I'm sure I'm going to explain this wrong. But a black hole is a star that's collapsed in on itself. And the mass is so strong from the black hole. Um, the gravitational force is so strong that it is sucking everything. It's pulling everything inward, including light, hence the name. It's a black hole. And the trajectory of our, of our sinful hearts increasingly are a black hole where we, we, because of that's what sin has done. It's turned us from God and it's made it where all of our desires on some level are about us. And what does Jesus do for us? Jesus frees us to love. Jesus frees us to no longer make everything in our lives about us. Jesus frees us to say, I'm secure in Christ, and so I don't have to look to this other person um, to like me or to have their approval or whatever. I don't, I don't have to look to this other person because I'm secure in Christ. And all of a sudden I can say, how can I love this person, not use this person? How can I serve this person, not ma- manipulate this relationship? That's what Jesus does for us. He frees our hearts from the inward pull that we have because of sin to go out and to love this world like this world needs to be loved. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that even though our hearts are naturally inclined inward because of sin, that you would fill our hearts with your love that we might be propelled outward into a hurting world. So many people increasingly these days don't even know what the gospel is. They've never heard the good news. They don't know that in your word is the words of eternal life. So Lord, would you move in our hearts to love you and to love others through the power that you alone provide. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.